2 Thessalonians, the entire uh, chapter 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. This is the word of our Lord. Well, I want to take your minds back to the latter part of the 1800s A man by the name of Luke Barr has uh, published this year a book uh, in which he is trying to to articulate the founding of the the leisured upper class. And at the end of the 1800s, he uh, takes us to the scene of London at the founding of the Savoy uh, Hotel. And a lot of the things that we think about in terms of living a life of luxury are actually founded by the manager of the Savoy uh, Hotel in London at the very end of the 1800s, a man by the name of Cesar Ritz. Putting on the Ritz. That's where it comes from. And Cesar Ritz was uh, hired by the owner of the Savoy Hotel uh, to uh, actually uh, develop the hotel to be the finest place for wealthy people to spend their money in all the world, and many would say that he accomplished that. A lot of the things that we uh, think about when we think about what it means to live a luxurious life, uh, they come from uh, Cesar Ritz. It was Ritz who actually said that the customer is always right. He's that man. 
Uh, it's Ritz who said that whenever uh, a customer walks into a hotel, they want to be served, but they want you to be invisible as their servant. Show up, refill the glass of wine, and disappear. Be invisible, but give them everything that they want. That says our Ritz. And when someone walked into the Savoy uh, Hotel, uh, Ritz would notice everything about them. And he'd do everything he could to meet their needs. And so in this book, it's a treasure trove of the habits of the uh, leisure class. And there's a man that Cesar Ritz admired greatly, and his name was Barney Bernardo. And whenever Barney Bernardo walked into the Savoy, uh, Cesar Ritz made sure to keep him happy. But there was something about this man that stood out to Ritz. He watched every customer for sure. When Barnado would uh, sit down and uh, begin his meal, he would eat alone. Uh, he would lean back in his chair about the middle of the meal, and he'd reach his hands in, his in one of his pockets, and he would pull out a handful of loose diamonds, and he'd swirl them around. And Ritz had done everything he could to make sure that the lighting of the Savoy was optimal, and he noticed that every time uh, Mr. Uh, Barnado pulled out those loose diamonds and swirled them in his hand, everyone in the restaurant would look to him. And of course, Barney Barnado knew that. He made his millions uh, in the uh, stock market, uh, trading largely in companies having to do with the gold and diamond trade in Africa. And it was deliberate. Barney Barnado at this time was working on building the largest mansion in London. It's there to this day. And he knew people were watching. And he probably knew Ritz was watching. And Ritz always admired that man. The confidence. The fact that he could get everyone in the restaurant to look at him and not say a word. Sit back and just roll those diamonds in his hand and then put them back in his pocket. You know what he's holding, of course. Barney Barnato is holding everything that holds his own reputation. He's holding diamonds, but the diamonds hold his reputation. The diamonds hold his eternal comfort. The diamonds uh, hold his prestige. The diamonds hold everything about that man. And he swirls them at every meal, puts them back in his pocket, finishes his dinner, walks out, and Ritz is enamored by him. There's something that happened in 1897 uh, in the gold and diamond market of South Africa. A number of shares absolutely and completely tanked. And Barney Barnado, on one of those trips back from Cape Town, notices this about the market, has no idea how to deal with the situation, and throws his body over the edge of the ship and is never seen again. And it struck Ritz when he caught news, it floored him. That man has died. And as I read this story by Luke Barr, I wondered if anyone thought to dredge that man's body out of the bottom of the ocean and reap the treasure, because those pockets, they're loaded with diamonds. And of course, no one did. But we as Christians will oftentimes place our comfort in uh, not uh, so different uh, objects. Uh, maybe we, no one here has a pocket full of diamonds, but our comfort we can certainly uh, cast around. We find our comfort in all kinds of things. 
Maybe it's our job or a future promotion or uh, maybe it's our bank account or maybe it's our status or reputation or our morals or or, or maybe it's just being a part of this church with this big, uh, beautiful sanctuary. Pocket full of diamonds. And our passage this morning is about where we place our comfort. And Paul is writing to a body of believers whom he knows and loves. We've seen his affection in every chapter of 1 Thessalonians. And what he knows about them now in this second letter is he knows that there's some disturbing news that they are hearing inside the congregation. And the disturbing news is this, that the second coming has already happened. The second coming has already happened. In the first letter that Paul wrote to this congregation, in chapter 4, Paul knew that they were uh, suffering with grief for lost loved ones. What was their concern? Their their concern wasn't merely that uh, loved ones, precious brothers and sisters in Christ have died. That that wasn't uh, their only concern. Uh, their Their concern was that they had died and that they will miss the glory and blessing of the return of Jesus Christ. You remember that in 1 Thessalonians 4. And what did Paul say to them? He said, don't be uh, uninformed about the future. The second coming will happen, and you will see it, and so will they, those precious brothers and sisters who have died. And Paul doesn't want them to uh, grieve as the world grieves. But now, here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, or 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, there's a different kind of problem. And now they believe uh, that perhaps... Perhaps the second coming has already happened. Paul says in verse 2 of our passage this morning uh, that they are on the edge of becoming quickly shaken in mind. You see that. Uh, Verse uh, 2 tells us the tone, the heart of the Thessalonians. uh, Not quite, but almost quickly shaken in mind, uh, not quite, but almost alarmed. Uh, They're on uh, the precipice why are they so tense? Well, there's, there's ramifications, aren't there, if the second coming has already happened? And I want to talk about some of those ramifications later, but for now, I want you to notice a, a couple of things about these Thessalonian uh, believers. Uh, they're not rattled, but they're close to it. There's something that has nearly shaken them up. It's a pressing matter in the life of the congregation. But I want you to know something about them. They're not an ignorant church. Paul has said in chapter 1, verse 3, that they are growing abundantly. We have in the first chapter a picture of people who are being greatly sanctified. They're not merely Christians. They're growing Christians. They're not ignorant. And not only that, they're not emotionally unsound as if they're just beginning to quiver at the smallest, slightest news. Uh, Paul has said uh, in verse 4 of chapter 1 that they're steadfast in faith even amidst affliction and persecution. When Paul said earlier that they're not to uh, grieve like the world grieves, uh, now Paul seems to be saying don't panic like the world panics. He knows these brothers and sisters. Uh, He knows that they're not ignorant. He knows that they're growing. He knows that they're not emotionally uh, unsound. Uh, He knows that they have put on the breastplate of faith, the breastplate of love, the the helmet of hope. They're well-equipped. 
mature body of believers. And so if they're not ignorant, and if they're not prone to panic, why are they at such a precipitous crisis? I think that's an important question for us to ask. Because verse 2 really stands out. These folks are quite uh, nervous. Why? I want to offer a couple of suggestions. I think the second suggestion is far better than the first, but I'll begin with the first. I just wonder if this particular congregation, you know congregations all look different, Christian congregations. I wonder uh, if this congregation is just a very emotionally sensitive congregation. Uh, just the language in First Thessalonians of Paul's uh, heartfelt desire to be with them and uh, knowing that they desire to be with Paul and that they miss him. And, and, and Paul going out of his way to make sure it's not just anyone that's sent to care for them, but Timothy himself. They know Timothy. Uh, they love Timothy. I just, I just wonder if this particular congregation is uh, emotionally sensitive or even uh, intellectually sensitive. Maybe it's just a really thoughtful congregation. Well, it could be that that's why verse 2 is so striking. They're right on the edge of uh, being uh, rattled. But actually, Paul tells us uh, really why it is that they are at such a precipitous juncture in their life together as a congregation. And he says in verse 2 that they're just surrounded by bad teaching. Do you see that? They're just surrounded by bad teaching. It's as if in the absence of Paul over time, something has been stewing in the congregation and they're receiving bad teaching. And he says in verse 2, remember Paul, he's always in First and Second Thessalonians giving us lists of three. And he says that they're surrounded by bad teaching in terms of a spirit of some sort. It's hard to know in verse 2 what is meant by a bad teaching that comes by way of a spirit. Uh, could, it, could it be something uh, internal inside of them? Uh, it could be, and many scholars think it's just a, a matter of prophecy. It's, it's a word for um, uh, preaching that they're receiving. It could be that the tempter's working on them. First Thessalonians chapter 3, you can go back. I mean, Paul's concerned uh, that the tempter is working on this congregation. And it could be that part of the bad teaching that they're receiving is uh, some kind of spiritual teaching, but a uh, Thankfully, Paul's very explicit. He goes on. He says, a spirit of some sort may be the source of it, but it also might be a spoken word. Uh, that Greek word is literally a report. They're, they're getting some news of some sort. And then finally, uh, it's a letter, uh, a letter that is falsely attributed to uh, either Paul or Timothy or Silas, likely. And so someone is actually writing a letter to them and then signing it, Paul, but the letter itself is bad teaching. And so here you have this sensitive congregation. They were grieving for lost loved ones, and they thought they'd missed the resurrection, uh, the second coming. And, and Paul says, no, the, the second coming uh, will be here, and the, your lost loved ones, they will see the second coming. And now they're, uh, they're being taught that the second coming uh, has already uh, happened, and they're just, they're just surrounded by bad teachers right now. But, you know, Paul knew this. If we look at the very end of 1 Thessalonians 5, what does Paul say to them? Paul says, test everything. Test everything. 
Uh, and this may be why Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 actually defends his own integrity. Remember how I was when I was with you. Uh, I lived blamelessly before you. Maybe when Paul was saying that, he wanted himself to stand out uh, against the background of those who are uh, trying to teach Thessalonians, but they're offering bad teaching and they live bad lives in their presence. Paul suspected that they would be taught bad doctrine. Just think about this. Just think about this. This will scare you. But we're transitioning into comfort. Paul believed that there were dangers outside of the church. We know that. We don't have to to look for uh, scriptural evidence of that. Uh, Paul believed that there were dangers outside of the church. uh, That there were persecutors uh, in the city of Thessalonica persecuting people because of their belief in Jesus Christ. And Paul has said to them that those persecutors that are in Thessalonica are an awful awful lot like the persecutors that are in Jerusalem doing exactly the same thing, persecuting people for their belief in Jesus Christ. And Paul himself knew that there were people who were outside the pale of the church uh, persecuting, afflicting those inside the church. Paul felt it on his back. Paul felt it on his face. But notice this, he also believed that there were dangers not only outside the church, but within the church. There are people who, in the name of Christianity, tell lies to believers. There's not just problems outside the church, there are problems inside the church. Bad doctrine is surrounding these, these uh, Thessalonian believers. And what they're saying is they're saying that the second coming has already happened. And we can ponder who it is that are uh, offering this bad teaching or uh, why they are doing it. But make no mistake about it, the Apostle Paul knows that there's danger outside the church and there's danger inside the church. And we need to take this to heart. The doctrine of the church what the church believes, discipline that happens inside the church, those things are all vitally important to the health of the church. And here we see why that is. Because what Paul is going to say in verses 3 through 12 is that the second coming is not something that has happened in the past. The second coming is a future event. That's what Paul is correcting And so Paul's words in verse 3 about the man of lawlessness, uh, his words in verse 7 about the mystery of lawlessness is challenging, but I want to carefully consider the very heart of the Thessalonians for a moment. They're on the defensive. Paul says in verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way. There's a difficult battle, an intellectual battle, a doctrinal battle Uh, a battle of Christian piety that is happening inside the church in Thessalonica right now. Paul says, let no one deceive you. And the word that he uses for deceive is strong. In fact, that word shows up once in the Greek Old Testament, and it refers to one person, and that's Pharaoh. And Moses says to Pharaoh in Exodus 8, 29, uh, don't deceive my people again. Don't cheat my people again. And Paul says there are people in the church that are deceiving the Thessalonian believers. They're working their way around the congregation. 
And so the Thessalonians, they're actually uh, on the defensive. And Paul, said, Paul calms them in verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way. And then he is going to describe to them that the second coming is a future event. There's a sense in which, what's the big deal? I mean, if the second coming is an event in the past, what do you think that might mean? Well, let's pause here for a moment and consider that. For these, for these uh, Christians in this church, what, what actually would be the problem of thinking that the second coming is something that had already happened uh, in the past? Well, there's a number of tremendous ramifications to that in the Thessalonian believers because I think they're intellectually sensitive. They're thinking about these things. I mean, Jesus is the one who is going to come in the future and display to them, undoubted by all, that they have been delivered from the wrath to come. Uh, His very arrival is their confirmation that there is no condemnation, no wrath, no judgment. That that very vocabulary is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Do you realize that in all five chapters of 1 Thessalonians, the second coming is mentioned? In every chapter. Because from the second coming, uh, just one of the ramifications, uh, there is great confirmation and vindication that there is no condemnation. And the whole world will see that because Jesus will be physically present. But if Jesus has already come, where's that confidence? Where is that confidence that they have been indeed delivered from the wrath to come? Uh, The very hope has been fixed on the second coming, that they would one day be vindicated by the second coming. The second coming was, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, it was their very encouragement uh, to sit around the fellowship table and talk about the second coming was to be a great source of encouragement to the church body. Uh, The second coming was actually their great motivation to live as a special kind of humanity, uh, a a humanity that is not not a child of the night, but a child of the day. How can they live that way? Because they know that the second coming will happen, that they will be vindicated, that there's no condemnation for them. It's their encouragement. It actually motivates them to live holy lives. In fact, Paul says that their holiness in this life is meant to be a presentation to Jesus at the second coming. Their holiness today is to be a special presentation that they make to Jesus at his second coming, giving to him their lives, their thoughts, their speech, their holiness. The great comfort of their loved ones was the glory of Jesus. And if the second coming has already happened, it's now time to go around to the tombs and roll back that stone and see if their loved ones are still there. They know that their loved ones are still there. They know they're still in the tomb. If the second coming has happened already, then they've missed it and their loved ones have missed it. And then for people who are struggling amidst persecution and affliction, being gathered together with fellow believers once and for all is everything. It's everything. How am I going to make it through this persecution One day, all of us will safely be seated around the table of Jesus enjoying that great meal with him. The second coming, it's everything. And if it's gone, everything's gone. 
if the second coming has already happened and they get up Monday morning and there's nothing different, there's nothing changed, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, at some point that very week, they're going to begin to wonder if the second coming's already happened, where's, where's Jesus? Where is he? Where's the certainty of his glorified body? Where's the, where is the, the exercise of, of his kingship, of his rule? Where is our own deliverance from sin? Where's Jesus? And how am I going to make it into Thursday and Friday and Saturday? Where's my motivation for holiness if he's already come? Where's the basis for our congregational life? Why are we hanging around together being persecuted? Let's scatter. It didn't work as we thought. And where are they? If, if the second coming has already happened, where are they personally in the story of redemption? They no longer fit in the Bible. Where is the story of redemption? Is there a story of redemption? You see, if the second coming is a past event and they get up and every day is just the same, well, they've lost everything. There's not just a few big unanswered questions. All of life is one big unanswered question. And who's going to answer these questions for them? You know, Paul has already said that. There is a body of deceivers, and they're happy to answer those questions. Do you see what happens? If God's plan is made to be unstable, just by appearances then another will step in and stabilize it. Let me give just a quick example. If this isn't you, that's okay. But oftentimes, what happens even in the arena of our own hearts is when life gets confusing and we're uncertain how God is using a situation in our sanctification, uh, something that you had hoped for, uh, a job or a payoff or a relationship, it just collapses in front of you. Sometimes when that happens, we problem solve our way out of it. Rather than trusting God, rather than marveling at God's plan for our lives, we problem solve our way out of it. Uh, suddenly everything seems unstable. I placed all of my hope in, in getting this job and I didn't get this job. What now? Well, when we should trust God, we oftentimes fashion another story. And we fashion another story. And we fashion another story. And if the resurrection has already come, there are huge ramifications, tons of unanswered questions in the life of the Thessalonian believers, but there's someone there to fashion another story. Do you see what happens? There is great harm being done to the congregation. Now, what do they need? What do they need? The resurrection has come. The story of redemption is uh, fractured, is broken. And there are others that are filling in the gaps. They're doing so for reasons of building up their own power or shaping the church after their own image. Who, who knows? Paul hasn't actually uh, uh, described that. But what do the Thessalonian believers need? They need comfort and not terror. Do you see where I've taken you? They need comfort and not terror. 
And the reason I say it that way is because oftentimes 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 ends up being a chapter in the Bible that gives birth of all ki- to all kinds of terror in the Christian life. We sit down and we commiserate about who this man of lawlessness is. We try and attach a name to this individual. Uh, we try and define his power uh, being unflurled around us. But I want to encourage us that this is a chapter about comfort. Let me just provide some very quick evidence for that. Look at the very beginning in verse 1. Concerning the, co- the coming of our Lord Jesus, that's what Paul is talking about, and our being gathered together to him. There, there Paul is setting the tone. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and that great moment of us being gathered together to him. Do you hear the comfort? Even in verse 1, let me tell you how we will be gathered to him. And then look at the, at the very uh, end of 2 Thessalonians 2. Uh, he says uh, in verse 15, remember what you've already been taught by me. Uh, there, there's a sense in which they already, they already know things. There's, there's nothing new here. Paul is unfolding the same gospel message that he brought to them when he was first introduced to the Thessalonians. He doesn't give them a new technique He takes them back to what they have already heard. There's nothing new. That gospel of grace that converted is the gospel of grace that gives comfort now. And and notice also in uh, verse 13, uh, the ultimate comfort that Paul offers them is actually not something that they've done and not something that the deceivers have done. Their great comfort is in something that God has done. In verse 13, he reminds them, you are chosen by God. Boy, that's how the doctrine of election ought to be used. To remind us as uh, as brothers and sisters of the work that God has done to save us. There is the doctrine of predestination in 2 Thessalonians 2.13 being put to great use. To comfort our brothers and sisters. Remember that it is God who has chosen you. That's the greatest comfort. And then you look at that lovely benediction in verses 16 and 17. Now may Jesus, now may God the Father, who gave us comfort, comfort us today. May the giver of all comfort do that today. And so we're getting ahead of ourselves, but I want us to hear that refrain that Paul is providing comfort Now, first, he's going to uh, comfort them by logically assuring them uh, that the second coming is coming. He says that there is something that's going to happen before the second coming, and and that hasn't happened yet. There's something that happens before the second coming, and that, that hasn't happened. Therefore, the second coming hasn't happened, but it will. He preaches the gospel to them again. He reminds them of that great consummation of the ages in the future when Jesus will come and assert his reign and he will make all things new. You know, Paul actually, in this passage, he's preaching the gospel to them again. The doctrine of a second coming that is future is critical for the gospel of grace. Jesus will one day come. Imagine preaching the gospel to someone, holding out the gospel to them, and saying that everything that's happening right now is pretty much the way it's going to be. Where's the gospel? Part and parcel with the message of the gospel is that the second coming is a future event. And so Paul, the first thing he does is he just comforts them uh, logically. There's something that comes before the second coming. That something hasn't happened yet. The second coming hasn't happened yet. You see, that's the easy part. That's that's why I'm starting there. But he moves on. 
He comforts them by logically assuring them of the second coming. But he comforts them also by expounding upon what that indicator of the second coming is. The man of lawlessness. Now I want you to hear very carefully what I've just said to you. Paul is comforting them by describing what this indicator is that happens prior to the second coming. Look, Paul could have said a trumpet's going to sound. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that have been great? Hey, a trumpet's going to sound and you haven't heard the trumpet, so second coming hasn't happened. He doesn't say a trumpet sounds. He says that there is a man of lawlessness that's going to appear on the stage of world history. That's the indicator that he talks about. And the reason why is he wants them to know that the second coming is going to happen. But instead of saying that a trumpet is going to sound and you haven't heard a trumpet, he says a man of lawlessness is going to come and you've not seen him yet. And he says a few things about this man of lawlessness. He says uh, that there is this man of lawlessness uh, who serves not the objectives of God, but he serves in verse 9 the objectives of Satan. And he is uh, a person who asserts uh, not uh, God's divinity and not the worship of God, but he, in verse 4, asserts his own divinity and his own worship. Uh, He's a man whose influence seems to grow through a collection of followers of his. Verse 10, these uh, wicked followers who uh, align themselves with uh, his purposes and they follow uh, this uh, man of lawlessness. That's verse 10. Uh, And he says that uh, this man of lawlessness actually uh, will infiltrate the very uh, temple of God in verse 4. Infiltrate, perhaps we might read that as as the church of God. He's going to go into the center of God's people. This man of lawlessness in verse 8 is going to ultimately be revealed. Keep that in mind. He's he's, he's a shadowy figure. He's not uh, revealed. But one day he's going to be revealed. And verse 8 says that his revelation is going to be pretty poignant. Uh, He's revealed just long enough to be killed by the breath of Jesus. And I want you to hear in all of these descriptors that that Paul seems to be describing um, an anti-Jesus an anti-church, anti-worship, anti-proclamation, anti-holiness. It's everything that would have been proclaimed to the Thessalonian believers as those hallmarks of the Christian life subservient to the great king. But it's everything in mirror image. It's uh, reversed. It's backwards. It's almost like Paul is giving them an example of an anti-gospel as he preaches. One uh, scholar actually says there's a lot of similarity here in 2 Thessalonians 2 uh, with Romans 5 where uh, Paul uh, holds up Jesus as the second Adam. And, and here we almost have this picture of like the, the, uh, the second church, an, an, an anti-church, a contrary church, these uh, things held up in analogy. Uh, the church by God's design and then a congregation of wickedness by the design of the evil one. That's provocative imagery. And Paul, 
for us uh, rationalistic, post-enlightenment readers of Scripture, uh, he doesn't answer all of our questions. Uh, he doesn't answer them at all. But who is this guy? How do we find him? Uh, maybe we want to know who he is because we want to cut him off at the path. We want to take care of him. But you know, it's interesting. That a, lot of, a lot of terminology in here is similar in Daniel chapter 11, uh, but God doesn't describe to Daniel who that individual is, the man of abomination in Daniel 11. Not described there either. Uh, Paul doesn't feel any compunction at all to describe in intimate detail who this individual is. Why is he telling us about this individual? Because he's providing comfort to the Thessalonian believers. And I think he's doing that by, by telling us about this man of lawlessness in five ways. There's five ways that this indicator, the second coming, actually comforts Christians. The first is this. It comforts because what Paul is saying to them in 2 Thessalonians 2 is easily proven. Obviously, Obviously, this church is surrounded by, penetrated by uh, gospel proclamations, by spirit, by report, by false letters uh, that are not true gospel proclamations. In verse 7, Paul says that the mystery of, God, of lawlessness is already at work. That's how Paul's comforting them. Look around you. You, you see those anti-gospel teachers. You hear what they are doing. Well... These things are already happening. The mystery of lawlessness, it's already at work. The deceivers around them, they don't actually confirm that the second coming has already happened. They confirm that the second, second coming has not yet happened. To talk about the man of lawlessness and to say in verse 7 that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work confirms in the Thessalonian believers that Paul is right, that the gospel is true. Look around you. The evidence of these deceivers proves to us that the second coming has not happened yet. Paul's talking about the man of lawlessness and he's comfort, comforting them simply because it's easily proven. Yes, Paul, I see that. The mystery of godliness is already at work. The second reason this comforts is because it confirms what Paul preached to them the very first time he met with them. Paul was with them, and he told them all of these things. He says, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? That's verse 5, actually. I think I said verse 15 earlier. Don't you remember I told you all of these things? And so when Paul talks about the mystery of the man of lawlessness, uh, Paul is comforting them because he is reminding them of what he preached to them months earlier. See, I told you this. And everyone needs to actually say, yes, Paul, you told us this. You told us that there would be deceivers that would grow up around us and among us and that they would preach a different gospel. You told us that, Paul. It, it, it comforts because in verse 7, Paul says it's at work right now, but it comforts simply because, that's right, Paul, you told us this already. We forgot, but you told us this. It strengthens them by reminding them of the gospel that they've already heard. But there's more. Those are the first two reasons. The third reason is this. This discussion, this talk about the man of lawlessness, it actually comforts because it shows God's control. Whoever 
this lawless man is, whoever his followers are, while they do their work, is hard as it might be in the present, as difficult as it might be to endure, they are restrained. In verse 6, his influence and power is circumscribed by God's control. In verse 7, God has corralled this man, has corralled this influence, so that unknowingly he actually serves the will of God for the care of God's own children. Paul asserts that this man of lawlessness, whoever he is, though he has the authority of Satan, though he has the weaponry of Satan through signs and wonders in verse 9, whoever he is, whatever power he has, make it as big as you like. But Paul says, don't ever think that he's not restrained. And that's comfort. That's comfort. He's restrained and he serves the will of my God. The anti-gospel may hurt me and the anti-gospel may hurt the church. But God knows what he's doing and he will sanctify me and he will sanctify his church. There is no power that comes to hurt me that is not controlled by my God. Notice in this chapter how often Paul talks about the restraint of God on this man of lawlessness. The fourth comfort is this. It comforts because it actually marks those who are deceived. Like a paintball pellet. It actually puts a mark on those who are the deceivers. Look what Paul says in verse 10. He describes a, a kind of living, a kind of life that is actually opposite to the obedience of the gospel. The lives of those who are in, influenced by the man of lawlessness are actually marked by unholy lives. I think of Romans chapter 1. That those who uh, are without, without excuse, they know the grace and mercy of God. They've heard the preaching of the gospel, but they uh, refuse to believe in the truth. And instead, uh, they uh, believe in lies. And Paul says in Romans 1 that these are, these are people who are suppressors of the truth of the gospel. Who are they? And Paul challenges uh, the Romans to look around. Their lives indicate that they are suppressing the gospel of truth. They live unrighteous lives. They are evil. They are covetous. They show malice and envy. They uh, practice murder. Uh, they show uh, strife and deceit and gossip in the life of the church. So on and so forth. Paul's comforting the Thessalonian believers by challenging them to look at those who are deceivers and see if they are for sure deceivers by an indication of their lives. He's marking them. He describes the kind of life that is lived if that life is opposite to the obedience of the gospel. And as I said, this is one of the reasons why we need to talk about these things in the life of the church, why church discipline is so important. It comforts because it marks those who have been deceived by this man of lawlessness and his retinue. And then here's the fifth reason that it comforts. It comforts because it displays Jesus' victory. Look at verse 8. Whoever this man of lawlessness is, whoever his followers are, whatever that influence looks like in the life of the church, notice that at the final revel revelation of who this person is, Jesus is going to defeat him, but he's not going to work very hard at it. 
he's not going to work very hard at it. He's going to destroy him with a breath. We have this great symmetry of God creating all things, displaying his will uh, by creation through his word. And Jesus with his word will defeat this man of lawlessness. It's significant that it's right here in the middle of this passage, verses 3 through 12. Whoever this man of lawlessness is, he will be brought to nothing. Now, I believe that these uh, five pictures of comfort are exactly why this indicator prior to the second coming is being talked about by Paul. He's trying to comfort them. And no matter how hard it gets in the life of this church, persecution outside and persecution within, God is in control. The church is called to be the church. And, And I want to finish here. You see, the gospel that has converted the Thessalonian believers is exactly the gospel that Paul expects to sustain them now in the present. Now, I'm disappointing a lot of people right now because I'm not describing the origin of the man of lawlessness or his uh, ascendancy or uh, the scope of his power, but, but Paul, I don't think, does that either. He just doesn't answer those questions. To make much of the, the man of lawlessness, I think, is unhelpful. To miss the fact that it's the gospel that comforts in all circumstances, because in the very gospel, the man of law, lawlessness is brought to nothing. That's what's important. And I think we see that clearly at the very end of the passage. Do you know, I've said this before in looking at the close of First Thessalonians. I'm going to do it again. Uh, the command words of Second Thessalonians chapter 2, there's only two of them. You know where they are. They're right at the end. What are the things that Paul actually tells the Thessalonians to do? This is his command. Given everything that I've said, I only want you to do two things, Paul says. And he says, I want you to stand firm and I want you to hold on. Stand firm and hold on. Those are the, stand firm and hold on are his only commands for the people. What about explaining everything about this man and, and, and how to recognize him, how to shake the bushes so that the birds fly, fly free and expose themselves? What about all that? Stand firm and hold on. He says, remain, don't move. Continue to trust in the gospel of grace. Hold on to it more and more. Don't change it. Don't look for part B or part C or volume two or three. Hold on to that gospel. The very word of God, the very word which I've already preached to you, you need nothing more. That which I've written to you is what you need to stand firm in, that which you need to hold on to. This is a wonderful reminder for all of us here this morning who doubt that God knows what he's doing in our lives. Something was supposed to go one way and it it went the other way. Or maybe there's some this morning who it's not life going crooked uh, or, or an event going crooked. It's everything in life going crooked. Maybe you're here this morning, you just feel like a complete and total failure. You always have been, you are today, you will be tomorrow. Good. You're in a great place. The gospel has something to say to you. There's a narrative that's larger than your failure. There's a narrative that's larger than that bad news that you received today. There's something greater, and you're not in control of it, but God is. And God accounts for all the struggle and the hurt and the pain that you experience in this life. He knows it. 
and he gives exactly the comfort that you need. The gospel of grace. The reminder over and over and over again that the gospel was meant for failures whose plans all fall to pieces. That's who the gospel is meant for. And that's you. And that's me. And I want to finish with this. Because that's you in Jesus Christ, you don't have to throw your body over the edge of a ship. You actually can stand on the edge of the ship, grab the loose stones in your pocket, and throw them far because you don't need them. You are provided for. Nothing in your pockets matters at all. You have everything you need. That is what Paul is doing in 2 Thessalonians 2. He is comforting them with the gospel that has saved them. Let's pray together. Our Holy Father, we thank you that you continue speaking to us. We praise you for our salvation. Those who uh, cannot remember a time when they weren't Christians, they praise you for their salvation. Uh, those who were converted as adults, they praise you for their salvation. Father, that salvation does not have an expiration date. You are with us always. And one day, the doubt will go away. And one day, the trust in a handful of diamonds will really and truly go away. You will be vindicated. And so will we. In Christ's name, amen.